we're going to go through 3 John tonight, and then over the next three weeks we're going to look at the book of Jude, and then the last one, uh, our last Wednesday night of the year before we take a break for the holidays, uh, Christmas and New Year's, uh, we'll look at Revelation 12, because that's the chapter of Revelation that's actually about Christmas. I bet you didn't know there was one. Um, so that's the schedule for the next uh, four weeks, uh, aside from the, the week of Thanksgiving, when we won't meet. But we're going to read the entire book of Third John tonight. It's the shortest book in the entire Bible. You don't have to tell anybody that. You can just tell them that tonight we, we studied an entire book of the Bible. Um, <laughs> So, let's start with verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with all your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. So this book, the church tells us, the early church tells us unanimously, it was written by the, the Apostle John. Uh, like all of his other writings, he never says his own name. He's different than Paul, who starts his letters with his name. I, Paul, an apostle or a servant of Christ. John never mentions his name here and in 2 John, as you saw last week, he calls himself the elder. Elder was a term that was kind of used interchangeably in the, in the New Testament era with the term overseer, bishop, or pastor. So uh, now I know I'm, I'm really not trying to pick a fight with Presbyterians and any of the other elder-led churches, but we believe, biblically speaking, you can see this in the book of Titus, for instance, that Paul, for instance, uses the term overseer, pastor, and elder interchangeably. So, uh, you know, whereas, whereas in elder-led churches today, there's this, there's this special category of, of leaders called elders, and then over here you have your pastors. We don't think that's biblical. Doesn't mean that's a, an article of faith. We still believe they are just as valid believers in Jesus as we are, and, and that's one of those issues when we get to heaven, we'll just see who is right. Uh, but... That's why we don't have a position in Baptist churches called elder. We believe elder is the same thing as pastor or minister. Um, John is calling himself the elder. I am, I am a leader of the church. And he's writing to an individual. This is one of several books in the Bible, in the New Testament, that are letters to individuals. This one is to a man named Gaius. We don't know anything else about Gaius. That's a Roman name. 
not a Hebrew name, so he was probably a Gentile. Uh, he may have been uh, the leader of a church, may have been the pastor of a church. John is writing to encourage him, and in, in spite of the fact that there are, this is the shortest book of the Bible, there are actually four different things that John wants to talk about, and I want to touch on each of the four. And starting with number one, there's the joy of being a spiritual parent. When I say a spiritual parent, I mean having someone who you are investing in, someone who uh, you pray for them, you, are, you pour into them with your, 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 not just your prayers, but your acts of kindness, uh, your words, you intentionally arrange time with that person because you are hoping to help them in some way. Maybe they're a non-Christian and you want to see them come to Christ. Maybe they're a, a young believer and you want to see them grow in Christ. Maybe there's someone who's going through a particularly hard time right now and you come alongside and help bear their burdens. Or maybe you're training them for some specific responsibility. You're good at something and they want to learn from you. And so you, they kind of walk in your footsteps and, and you show them how to, whether it's sharing your faith or whether it's uh, teaching uh, the Bible or whether it's how to pray. You're teaching them, you're helping them. In other words, you're a spiritual parent to somebody when you take them under your wing. And they don't have to be younger than you, although often they will be, but they do have to be someone who needs something from you in Christ. And if you've never been in that position, you're missing out on one of the great joys of the Christian life. Let me just give you this testimony from me as a pastor, because I get to do this a lot. You probably hear uh, people, pastors complaining about how hard it is to be a pastor, and it is true, there's a difficulty there. And so there's a lot of, uh, of call to encourage your pastor, and, and y'all do a great job of that. Let me just say, one thing I've learned is, uh, I've, I've got lots of kind church members and they write me notes and emails and they tell me you're doing a good job and sometimes they take me out to dinner or, or lunch or even give me a gift card or something. All of that's great. All of that's wonderful. And it means a lot. But nothing encourages me. When I get down, nothing encourages me more than meeting somebody who shows evidence that they've grown in Christ. When I say, when I look at somebody and I say, okay, they used to be angry all the time. Now they seem at peace. They used to be very timid. Now they seem bold. They used to be very arrogant, standoffish. Now they seem very humble and kind. And I think to myself, I don't know how much I had to do with that, but I'm part of their church and I've invested in them intentionally. So I feel good. If you want to encourage, not just a pastor, your life group leader, a deacon that you know that is, is working hard and doing a good job. Any kind of leader, the, the person who uh, takes care of your kids in the nursery or teaches your grandkids in Sunday school, if you want to encourage that person, again, cards, emails, phone calls, lunches, uh, gift cards, those are all appreciated, but even better is to say some practical way that they have helped you grow in Christ. That will make their day. They, they will hang on to that and the devil's arrows will bounce off of them like nothing you've ever seen. So literally, if you, can, if you can come up with some practical way, even if it's just, you know, I never really realized that about the book of uh, 2 Corinthians until you brought it up today. Or, you know, Junior used to throw a fit every time I told him no, but ever since you taught him that lesson about patience, he's been acting differently. <laughs> So anything you can do to encourage, but most, the most encouraging thing you can do is to show people, this is how you've helped me grow in Christ. 
And I think anybody here who's had any kind of leadership in the church or in ministry would say the same thing. There's a joy in being a spiritual parent, and I hope that you get to have that joy. But in order to have that joy, you have to invest in others. All right. The second thing that John wants to talk about is the necessity of supporting faithful missionaries. Now, he doesn't use that term, but he says, the brothers have come back to me and have told me about you. Right. It sounds a lot like the kind of thing Paul would say. But the brothers he's referring to, in Paul's case, it was usually the guy who brings you, who brought you the last letter from me, Timothy or Silas or Epaphras. In this case, these are traveling evangelists that have been sent out by John. See, there, it's, it's, we live in such a different world today where uh, most people who do ministry, they have a steady income, whether it's through a church like me or through a non-church ministry of some kind. In this day and age, when John is writing, that, that wasn't the case. If you were the leader of a church, you might get some income, but most churches couldn't afford to pay a living wage. And and often these guys didn't feel called to settle down. They went from church to church, strengthening the churches. That was Paul's uh, situation, remember? Paul didn't take money from churches because he was planting out on the frontier. He he wasn't going to go to to unsaved people and say, I'll tell you about Jesus, but you've got to pay me first, right? So these these brothers that John is talking about were traveling evangelists sent by John, and they reported back to him. And what their report was, was, yeah, when I got there, they invited me into their homes. They fed me. They took care of me. That's hospitality, which was highly valued in the ancient world. That was one of the ways you showed that not just you, but your community was an honorable one, was you offered hospitality to people. But hospitality in that culture meant more than just taking, some, take caring, taking care of someone's physical needs. It also was a, a way to validate that person. So here's a stranger who's come into town, and he's preaching the gospel. And the rest of that town would look at that stranger and go, what's he doing here? Is he he a spy from some enemy? Is he a troublemaker? But if you, a respected member of the community, invited them into your home and you you fed and clothed them and and gave them a place to stay, uh, then the whole community was saying, oh, well, then you're vouching for them. You must trust them. I guess we can trust them too. So by by offering them hospitality, the, the Gaius and his church were supporting the ministry of these men. Even if they couldn't, didn't have money to pay them, they were supporting their ministry in a very practical way. By the way, when Jeff taught 2 John last week, you probably noticed that John encouraged or urged the, the, his readers, don't receive these men, this, this different group, this, these false teachers. Don't bring them into your home. I know it's going to seem rude, but if they're preaching a false gospel, you don't want to validate them by bringing them into your home. That sounds rude, but the gospel was at stake. Hospitality meant something. And he says that they go around accepting nothing from the Gentiles. See, in in Greek culture, it was common for these traveling philosophers. There were teachers. That's another difference between our our culture and, and the ancient world. You could go out and make a living just going around lecturing and talking about philosophy. Try that today, right? If you have, if anybody here majored in philosophy in college, you probably don't earn your living as a philosopher, right? But back then you could. 
But the way you did is you would say you would gather a crowd and then you would pass the hat. You like that? You like that that stoicism I just talked about, that Epicureanism or whatever? Well, here you go. Pay me back. And these men weren't doing that. They were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were saying, again, you need Jesus. I'm not going to charge you for it because it's the good news and the good news is free of charge. So in verse eight, I want to point out, it says, therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. That's an amazing verse right there, because what it says is any support you give to a missionary, you are a fellow worker with them. Now, one of my personal heroes is William Carey. In fact, we named our son after him. William Carey was an Englishman who basically launched the modern day missions movement. I mean, the idea of, of young Christian men and women growing up and saying, I want to go to the foreign mission field, that was unheard of before William Carey. William Carey was a, an English cobbler's apprentice, poor man who had this dream to take the gospel to other nations. He really wanted to go to Tahiti. He ended up going to India instead. But in, in, in trying to gather the support for this venture, he was, he was an English Baptist and he was talking to English Baptist leaders and most of them told him he was crazy. And some of them told him, well, God can convert the heathen without us. But a few got interested. And he said, listen, what I'm about to do is sort of like exploring a cave. I'm going where no Christian's been before. I'm going in the dark. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I need y'all to hold the rope. I can't do this without you. If I go without you holding the rope, I'll die down there. And ever since then, missionaries have used that same metaphor. Hold the rope for me. They'll come home on furlough and they'll, they'll preach in churches and they'll say, Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for giving to the Lottie Moon offering. Thank you for supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. And they're right. We, when we support missionaries, we are working alongside them. That is a powerful thing. All right? So there's a necessity there. And then the third thing he wants to talk about is the danger of wanting to be first. He mentions this fellow, Diotrephes. Again, Roman name. We don't know anything about this man except what John says about him. He may have been the leader of another church in the area, a competing church, so to speak, even though churches shouldn't be in competition. Or maybe he was a member of Gaius's church, maybe an influential uh, man in the church that was causing problems. John is upset with him for three reasons that he mentions in the letter. Number one, he's been gossiping about John the Apostle and his team of ministers, the the missionaries he's been sending out. Uh, John puts it this way. He's been talking wicked nonsense, wicked nonsense about us. In other words, it's not true and it's evil. Number two, he has refused to show hospitality to the missionaries that I've sent. And number three, probably worst of all, he is intimidating anybody else who wants to show hospitality to them. He's, he's threatening to throw them out of the church if they bring these missionaries into their home. Now, why would he do this thing? I'm sure he has his own excuse. If there, was a, if there was a book of diatrophies in the Bible, we would know his side, but there's not because he was in the wrong. I'm sure in his mind, he would say, well, those, those missionaries from John, they're, they're not preaching the truth. So we shouldn't welcome them. He'd, had, he'd have some excuse. 
But John, because he's an apostle of God, and this is the word of God, we know that this is not his opinion. We know this is truth. What John says is, he's doing this because he wants to be first. Now, can we just step back for a moment and get humble, humble ourselves enough to say, that is in every one of us. That idea that I need to be first. Those of us who are extroverted, it, it's, it shows more. But even the quietest, mildest, meekest person in this room, you have that nature that says, I need to be first. I need to stand up for my rights. And, and to tell you the truth, for all the good things about being an American, being an American just feeds into that. Because we're taught from an early age, you need to win. You need to stand on that gold medal platform while they play the, the Star Spangled Banner. You know, you just stand up for yourself. That's what our forefathers did at Bunker Hill, right? We need to stand up for our rights. In my experience, the root problem behind almost every conflict in almost every church is this right here. I need to be first. My opinions matter. My goals matter. Sometimes it's the pastor, the pastor who, who decides, I need for people to listen to me. I need for people to do what I say. And anybody who even questions my authority or my opinion or my direction, well, they're an enemy and they need to be run off. And I've heard so many stories of pastors doing that. Run people out of the church just because they disagreed or asked a question in a business meeting. Sometimes it's a, 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 a lay leader, maybe a deacon, maybe a, a life group leader, maybe somebody who's just been there a long time and has given a lot of money and they're just not used to not getting their way. Maybe sometimes it's, it's two people who get crossways with each other, two church members that just get angry with one another. And instead of saying, uh, you know, as God's people, we need to put our personal conflicts aside for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ. No, they act like little kids on a playground and they, they get as many people on their side as they can and they divide the church because of their own little petty quarrel. I have to be first. By the way, what I just said about that being the case for uh, nearly every conflict I've ever seen in a church, that's also true in our other relationships. When you think about the conflicts you've had in your relationships, whether it was when you were a kid and you were mad at your parents or whether when you were a parent and you were mad at your kids, whether when you were off on your own and you got mad at your roommate or your friend or your former friend, it was because you wanted to be first and so did they. This is why Paul in Ephesians 5 says, wives submit to your husbands and husbands lay down your life for your wife. Both are ways of God saying, you don't come first. Every time you choose to come in first, you both end up last. I mean, it's, it's why uh, I, I'm told that at the 50th anniversary of this couple, uh, somebody, some younger man walks up to the husband and said, do you have any advice on how to stay married 50 years? He said, yeah, never win a fight. <laughs> and every time I tell that story, people laugh, but it's true. You shouldn't win fights with, with someone you love. That shouldn't be your goal. That shouldn't be your goal. Because if you're trying to win, then somebody's got to lose. Love doesn't seek to win a fight. Love seeks the good of us both. Now, we're sinners, so sometimes that doesn't work as smoothly as we want it to, but it ought to be our goal. Don't seek to be first. Whenever you're in any kind of conflict, especially in the church, ask yourself, is this really about Jesus or is it just about me getting my way? I'd put it this way. If you're ever, next time you're upset, and this goes for me too, by the way, 
Next time you're upset, picture yourself standing in front of Jesus and explaining to him why you're upset. Now, can you, in all honesty, imagine him going, you got a point there. <laughs> yeah, that, that other person has it coming. About 99% of the time, probably not. I think we'd be embarrassed most of the time to explain in front of our Lord the things that got us all stirred up. So that's a good, a good reminder, the danger of wanting to be first. And then finally, the power of a good example. In verse 11, he says, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. That seems so self-evident, but it reminds me of what Jesus said about how to evaluate a teacher or a preacher. We evaluate teachers and preachers by how eloquent they are. Do they keep? Do they maintain our interest? Um, are they are they are they fairly good at sticking to the text? So are they explaining the Bible well? Those are all important things, but none of those are the things that Jesus said about how to evaluate a teacher or a preacher. He said, "You will know them by their fruits." By their fruits, meaning their character. A person can be very authoritative and persuasive. They can even be someone who preaches the absolute truth. But if they're not acting like Jesus, if they're not growing into the image of Jesus in their personal character, then don't follow them. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to their podcast, right? I, I, I've been in church my whole life. And too many times I've heard people say, you know, our pastor, he's, he's a pretty rough old guy, man. He's, he's, got a, he's got a sharp temper and he, he, he can be rough, but man, he preaches the truth. And I want to say, well, somebody needs to get on, get on him about his temper then because his character is getting in the way of the truth of the gospel. So a good example matters. John gives the example of a man named Demetrius. Now, why he mentions Demetrius here, we don't know. Is he a, a fellow pastor out there in the area where Gaius is? is? Is he saying, hey, look up Demetrius. He's a good guy. You've got this Diotrephes guy giving you a bunch of trouble. You're gonna need a good friend like him. Take him out to lunch. Y'all need to share some thoughts. Maybe he can help you. Maybe. Or maybe Demetrius is the guy who brought this letter to Gaius. He's the messenger. Remember, they didn't have a postal service back then. Any, any mail was hand-delivered by a messenger. Maybe he's saying, this guy who handed you this letter, he's a good person. Stick, Keep him around for a while. He will help you. He will guide you. Do you have examples like that in your life? Are there people who you choose to spend time with on a regular basis, and every time you're around them, you come away better. We all need that. That's why Christian friendship is so important. And that's something that's underrated in the Christian life. We don't talk about that enough. We, we say be in church and, and have a life group and uh, you know, pray and, and study the Word and all that's true. We don't talk about how important it is to have good Christian friends. Not just people you play golf with and go to the movies with and shop for antiques with, although that's fine and that's good, but have at least one person in your life that you see on a regular basis that you think, I want to be more like him or more like her. And when I'm around them, I'm inspired. That's, that's what we need. And are you that to someone else? And you might say, well, I'm not so arrogant to think that I would be a good influence. No, do it. Be intentional. Look for the opportunity to say, this is someone, again, that I can be a spiritual parent to and invest in them. If they don't want your help, they'll let you know. 
But until then, there's so many people who need what you have. Listen, for, for most of our history as a country, families have, have lived in the same community for generations. And so you would grow up and you'd have mom, dad, you'd have grandma and grandpa, aunts and uncles. They'd be there with you your whole life. Now people live miles and miles away from where they grew up. They don't have any people to, to, to impact their lives. If they don't have a, a Christian boss who takes an interest in them, who's going to do that? We have a church full of people who've been walking with the Lord for decades. And, and what a wasted resource it would be if they didn't have some part to play in the lives of young families, young single adults, teenagers in this church and in this community. I'm just saying, look for that opportunity because it's needed. I can tell you right now, it is absolutely needed. I'm 53 and I still need that. So, Gaius and this letter is a reminder to us that our lives matter in, in God's plan. This is my last point. We don't know anything about Gaius, but he was important enough that the Apostle John wrote him a letter, and that letter was important enough to God that God preserved it in His Word. The Holy Spirit made sure we saw what that letter said. 2,000 years from now, if there's still a planet Earth, and you know, there's, it's not the new Earth by then, the Lord hadn't come back, I'll be surprised. But if, if that's the case, um, nobody's going to know anything about you and me. But we matter to God. We matter infinitely to Him. We matter enough that He gave His life for us. So remember that, and let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your kindness to us. Thank You that we matter to You. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would see the people around us who need our help and take full advantage of that. Lord, help us to walk with You faithfully. Revive our church, Lord, revive our land. We need it so badly. In Jesus' name, amen.